Today we come to one of the most important passages in the whole of the Bible. Um, Martin Luther, well, he makes a pretty big claim. He says that this is, he says, not just the most important passage in, in the whole of Romans. He reckons that it is the most important passage in the whole of the Bible. Now, that's a pretty big call. Um, now, we've spent the last four weeks going through a long, dark tunnel, hearing about all of the bad news of the terrible predicament we humans are in. The godlessness and the sin of humanity has been a downward spiral which gets worse and worse and worse. And as the Apostle Paul has spelled out all of the bad news in detail, he has led us to the final inescapable conclusion that no one is righteous, not one. Both Jews and non-Jews alike are under sin. They are ruled by sin. They are controlled by sin. And so no human being is at all capable of being so completely good that they are righteous before the eyes of a holy God. Even the Jews who had God's law, no matter how hard they tried, they, they couldn't even keep that law, certainly not to the standard that God required. And so... If God is a just God, when we who are guilty stand before him on the day of judgment, what do you expect he's going to say? Even the very best of our deeds won't earn us enough brownie points to get us to heaven. Uh, We will be judged. And the only judgment, the only right judgment, the only just judgment that God could give is to condemn us to hell. Now, that's the bad news. We're left with a hopeless, terrible predicament for all of humanity. But today is the turning point in Romans. One of the most glorious phrases in the Bible is a phrase that we will read over and over again throughout the New Testament, and it's only two words long. Does anyone know what it is? It's one of the most bestest phrases in the Bible. Two words, but now. But now, we have all sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all are subject to judgment, all are under sin. The wrath of God is being revealed and the wrath of God will boil over in judgment. And on the day of judgment, we will all be held accountable accountable for our sins. We are all doomed, but now. Something has changed. The downward spiral that has been leading to judgment, we're on this highway to hell, but suddenly there's an off-ramp. There's a new way. A couple of years ago, we were visiting Robin's parents in Imble, uh, just up near Gympie. And on our way home, we had to go to some specialist appoint, go to a specialist appointment in Brisbane. So we're travelling down the Bruce Highway, three lanes, everything going beautifully, traffic flowing along at about 110. So we would have been going a bit faster than that. And we were going to be arriving at our destination at just the right time, well, with a fair bit of time to spare actually, when all of a sudden we heard some bad news. Coming over the UHF was the bad news of a disaster up ahead. Now, I don't know how this could have happened, but the B trailer of a B double tipper, that's the big one at the back, somehow had accidentally got engaged and it had tipped and it was up in the air right at the point that he got to an overpass and he went under the overpass. And probably, yep, see that picture there? That is the actual event. 
I actually looked it up on the news. I thought, this I've got to see. And I got that picture off of the news. And it hit that overpass at 100 kilometres an hour. Uh, and it tore the body off the rear trailer. And it wedged it up there underneath the overpass. And, of course, when the truck behind ran into it, uh, it caused absolute mayhem. And what were we going to do? We, we were going to be stuck on this freeway for hours. There we were. Where we were, everybody was completely oblivious to it. Nobody knew that this was happening. And where we were, the traffic was flowing along beautifully at 110. But we knew we'd been told this bad news over the two-way of what was up ahead. And we knew that we weren't going to make our appointment in time. It was a disaster. We thought things were going great, but then all of a sudden, we weren't going to get there. But then suddenly in front of us was an off-ramp. There was a way out of it. And we got off that freeway and we got onto the old Bruce Highway and we made our appointment in time. We were doomed. But now, look, there's an off-ramp. Let's take it and let's take it now. Now we know that if God is a just God, if he is a God of justice then he has no other option but to judge us as guilty. That's what we've been hearing for the last four or five weeks. And so if God is a God of justice, he must judge us as guilty except for those two precious words. But now. And today in verse 26, we discover that God is not just just, He is also the justifier. He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And so there is a hope. There is an assurance for the one who has faith in Jesus that on the day of judgment, we will not be held guilty. We will not be held accountable because we will be justified through faith in Jesus. We will not be doomed. The Lord our God will say, righteous justified. But how can that be? What's changed? Paul has been relentless in laying down all of these charges and convincing us that we're all guilty, that we're all doomed. How now then can we be justified? How can we be righteous? Well, Paul describes it using two different types of language. He talks in the language of the slave trade and he also talks in the language of the law courts. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption means to be bought out of slavery. When Paul was laying down the charges against us, he told us that we are under sin. Now that means we're slaves to sins, we're captured by it, it rules over us, sin has become our master and so we are incapable of being righteous because we are under sin. But as a free gift of God, we are redeemed, we are bought out of slavery to sin, we are no longer under sin. Now that means... A price had to be paid. And of course, that price was the death of Jesus on the cross. The second type of language that he uses 
is the language of the law courts. Righteousness, just, justified, justifier, propitiation. Um, They're all words to do with the law courts. Now, the first four of those words, righteousness, just, justified, justifier, in the original Greek all stem from the same Greek word, dikaios. I think we know what righteousness means, don't we? Uh, It means that we have nothing bad about us. Everything we do is right. And, of course, the only one who is truly righteous is God. And for us to be righteous, it's only God who can make us righteous. Just. Well, a just judge is someone who is right, who is a righteous judge, who will always judge correctly. And because God is just and we are all sinners, as we are, God can do nothing but judge us as guilty. Justified. Well, when somebody was on trial, the judge would have to decide if they were righteous or not. And if the judge was to slam it down his gavel and say, justified, well, that means you're off the hook. You're not guilty. And then we have justifier. Now, that is an uncommon word. It only appears twice in the Bible, once here and again about one chapter later in the same book. And the thing is, God doesn't only judge whether we are righteous or not. He doesn't only judge if we are justified. He also makes us righteous. He makes us justified. So that when we stand before him on the day of judgment, even though we've committed all of these sins, he takes all of these sins away and he covers us over with righteousness. When he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin He sees the righteousness of Jesus. But how does he do that? And this is where the fifth word comes in, propitiation. And no, that's not the Greek word. That's the English word, propitiation. You've all used that this week sometime in your daily dealings. Yeah, I've got a few nods. How did you use it, Tim? You nodded. When did you use the word propitiation? What was that to do with I was talking to your wife last night. Yep. <laughs> you lie. <laughs> um, there's no South Africans here. I went to a lot of trouble to discover the South African word for this because this is so confusing, this word. We, we English speakers don't even know what propitiation is. Um, for the South Africans, I looked up the, the Afrikaans word. It's, it's, you have to, Forgive the pronunciation, but fasunan, which I think means reconciliation, but that doesn't fully explain the word. In the Greek, it tells us that God put Jesus forward as a hilasterion. And though that's not a type of plant, um, it's, it's a word which is a hard one to translate. The best translation is propitiation, but who's ever heard of that word, honestly? We don't know what that means. Some versions of the Bible translate it as expiation. There you go, that should clarify it up for you a bit. Who uses the word expiation? No one. No, we don't know what it means. The NIV translates it as sacrifice of atonement. It'll be easier for me to describe what it means rather than to give you a one-word definition. 
So here's an example. Consider the case of a certain factory worker who was seriously injured on the job. After the doctors could do everything that they could, he was still left partially paralysed. An investigation then revealed that the company was at fault because it did not provide a safe workplace and nor had the proper safety equipment been provided for its employees. Thus, it was liable for the dangerous conditions that had resulted in this man's injury and permanent paralysis. Now, as we've seen in similar situations, the court will probably award the injured man a great sum of money for his pain, suffering and permanent injury. Now, once the company pays the judgment against it, it has been expiated of its wrongdoings. Right? The demands of justice have been satisfied. The company no longer has any responsibility toward the injured man. That is expiation. They have paid for their wrongdoings. The debt is paid. But we haven't yet dealt with how the injured man feels towards the company. Even though they've paid that debt, even though he's received this enormous amount of money to pay for all of his injuries and whatnot, he may continue to be filled with resentment and bitterness and even hatred. He may spend the rest of his life abhorring the very name of the company that he once used to work for. The debt that the wrong had incurred was expiated. It had been paid for. But the wrath that the wrong incurred has not been propitiated. Right? So the expiation is the paying of the debt. The propitiation is taking away the wrath that is owed. And when Jesus Christ died... He not only paid the debt for our sins, but he reconciled us to God by satisfying the Father's wrath. He was both an expiation and a propitiation for our sins. Now, the word hilasterion was used by the Greeks to describe the way that they would appease their many gods who would get angry at them for no reason. That's how the Greeks would use it. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was used to discover the, sorry, used to describe the atonement cover. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was used to describe the lid of the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat. That's why we had that little demonstration there before about this Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was this box in the temple. It was kept in the Holy of Holies and in it were the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments that were written on them, um, Aaron's staff which had budded and a pot of manna that God had fed the people of Israel with when they were in the desert. And the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the atonement cover or the mercy seat. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was called the Hilasterion. And now in Romans, it's telling us that Jesus is the Hilasterion. What's the significance of this? Everything. Everything. Under the old covenant, one day a year, 
the people were reconciled to God and it would happen on the Day of Atonement. And first the priest would have to get right with God and he'd have to go through all these ceremonial washings and put on his proper garb and everything and, and then go into the presence and then he would have to get right with God and he would kill a, kill a bull and he would sprinkle the blood of the bull on the hilasterion, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was how he would atone for his sins. And then so that the people could be right with God, he would kill a goat. And he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the hilasterion, on the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. Right? This is the location where the forgiveness of sins took place. This is the place where sins were atoned for. And the wrath of God was quenched. And now Jesus is the Hilasterion. He is the expiation. He is the one who has paid the debt of our sins. He is the propitiation. He is the one who quenches the wrath of God. You know, when we are forgiven in the name of Jesus, we are so completely forgiven that God hates all, sorry, God forgets all of our sin and he remembers them no more. He has no wrath towards us anymore because by his grace he has made us pure and holy in his sight. Now, that's how God is different from us. We know we have to forgive people, don't we? But how many times have we forgiven somebody, but <laughs> it's all very good and nice and say to forgive and forget, but it's a bit hard, isn't it? And you can forgive somebody, but still have this resentment, which makes you be wary of them forever. Well, when God forgives us, he he remembers our sins no more. That's not because he's got Alzheimer's. It's because he forgives us so completely. He removes all hint of wrath. And Jesus Christ is the place of atonement. Jesus is the one who atones. Christ is the mercy seat. There once was a time when the high priest once a year would enter the curtain of the temple and go into the Holy of Holies and there at the mercy seat he would sprinkle blood for the atonement of the sins of Israel, but not anymore. When Jesus died upon the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom and now Jesus is the atonement. Jesus Christ is the one that we come to so that our sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is quenched. And some people will carry guilt all their life, sad because they feel that there's no way out of it. There's no way for me to be forgiven of, of this terrible stuff that I've done. But there is. Jesus Christ is the atonement. Friends, this isn't just all some religious mumbo-jumbo with big words. And I really hope that you didn't just, when you saw some big words, just turn off and go, ah, that's beyond me, I don't care about that. This is the very essence of why Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. He became that sacrifice. He took the penalty that was due to us. 
our God is a God who is both a God of justice and a God of mercy. He's not only a just God, but he's also a God who justifies. And he did that through the sacrifice of his own son. Because God was just, somebody had to pay the penalty of our sins. Someone had to take the righteous wrath of God. And the only one who could do this was his own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And so by having faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, we don't worry about judgment any longer. We are justified. We are made righteous. Now that might raise a bit of a question. Well, what about those who lived in Old Testament times? How can they be saved? Well, we're told that we're now made righteous without the law, but the law still had and has value. And when we're talking about the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law that the people of Israel lived by. The law and the prophets bear witness to our real means of salvation. They bear witness to what Christ would do and has now done. And verse 25 tells us that God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. Now what that means is that God didn't pour out his wrath on humanity as they deserved it. I reckon it means that he was like like he was storing it up and he settled accounts at Calvary. All of the blood of bulls and goats couldn't ever take away sins. They were like an IOU to be paid up at the cross on Calvary. But it's not an IOU any longer. It's paid up in advance. God's righteousness has been revealed because he will not unjustly just let people off. A lot of people believe that. They reckon, oh, if God is a God of love, he, he won't send anyone to hell. He'll just let us off. But because God is a God of justice, he can't do that. You don't want him to just let off rapists and murderers and child molesters, do you? Where do we draw the line at sin? God's righteousness has been revealed because he has become our saviour. He had the power to save and that's exactly what he did. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the US, in the days of the pioneers, when those pioneers saw the smoke of a prairie fire racing towards them, what would they do? Not even the fastest of horses could outrun a blaze in that long, dry grass. What they would do is they would light a match of their own and they would burn the grass in a designated area around them and then they would take their stand in that burnt area and they'd be safe from the threatening prairie fire. As the roar of the flames approached, they would not even be afraid because even as the ocean of fire surged around them, there was no fear because fire had already passed over the place where they stood. 
And when the judgment of God comes to sweep men and women into hell for eternity, there is one spot that is safe. Around about 2,000 years ago, the wrath of God was poured out on Calvary, where the Son of God took the wrath that should have fallen on us. And now we take our stand by the cross. Here in Christ we stand, justified, holy, righteous, children of God, our righteous Saviour.